If you have your Bible this morning, turn with me to the New Testament book of Hebrews chapter 9. I am very excited about what the Lord has laid upon my heart to share with you today. Uh, There is much to say, so I'll speak fast, you listen fast. Uh, Next week we'll, we'll be here for Easter. As you know, it's been two years since we've been able to gather together for Easter. This will be a special day. You heard the schedule in the pre-service announcements, but let me just take a moment uh, to focus on that. We will have our regular worship, regular worship time. 1015 will be right here. 1015 will be right in the summit service. And so you're welcome to come at this time. There will also be overflow opportunities for both of these services. We have people now meeting in the lower level of the sanctuary. That's always an overflow area. We're going to add to that the chapel. And so there will be uh, different places for you to go and spread out if that's uh, something that is of special concern for you. So 1015, we're really looking forward to it. It'll be a great time. But we're also offering an additional service celebration only at 8 o'clock. And so 8 o'clock to about 8.50, we'll come in here. If you have special concerns about social distancing, that's probably the best service for you to attend. Uh, We'll not have a choir, uh, but I think the orchestra is going to be here. We're going to have a great service at 8 o'clock and then, of course, Sunday school at 9. But join us either at 8 o'clock or join us at 10.15 for worship. Invite somebody to come with you. Invite your neighbors. It's been a couple of years since anybody's been to church for Easter. This is the year everybody can come back. And so I hope you will help us get the word out. Well, Hebrews chapter 9, you know, I believe that you know, that one of the hardest things in the world is forgiveness. And whether you're seeking forgiveness from the Lord, God extending forgiveness to us, that's a very hard thing or you're seeking to forgive someone who has hurt you, that's hard. Or or maybe even you're trying to forgive yourself. Forgiveness is one of the hardest things that ever happens. How can you ever really right a wrong? Once somebody has hurt you, how can you ever undo a hurt? Forgiveness is an almost impossible thing. And really, if you look at the story of history, It is the story of people seeking forgiveness. The rise and fall of nations, a thousand pagan religions and philosophies, billions of desperate prayers prayed to made up gods. Everybody is seeking forgiveness. And when we get to the end of this life, and maybe even in eternity, and we look back on our days here, we will see that our entire life was a quest to be right with God, to be forgiven for all the sins that we've committed. So how can a person be forgiven? There's really only two options. Either we do something to be forgiven or God does something so that we could be forgiven. So let's look at those two options. Is there anything that we can do? If we've sinned against God, and we have, we've offended God, we have violated his standard, is there anything we can do to remedy the problem? Well, no, obviously. The only thing we're really good at is sinning. Have you noticed that? We, we've sinned from our earliest days, and we've tried to stop sinning a few times. Haven't you done that? 
How many times have you said, I won't ever do such and such again. I won't ever tell a lie. I won't ever lose my temper. I won't ever raise my voice in anger. I won't ever eat the extra donut. We make those commitments and we discovered that we're much better at sinning than we are at not sinning. And so if it were up to us to make forgiveness possible, forgiveness would never happen. Well, then perhaps God could make forgiveness possible. But even that is very difficult because God is holy and righteous. He is the perfect judge who demands that sins be paid for. When the law is broken, when the standard is violated, there must be payment. So how in the world could God ever extend forgiveness to us? Forgiveness is a hard thing, but God is great and his love is strong. And God ordained from the very beginning, God created from the very beginning a way that we could be forgiven, a way that we can be right with him, that all of our sins can be washed away. And I wanna tell you about that this morning. God began to explain this about 1,500 years before the cross and the resurrection. We think of Jesus and his ministry and his life, and we think of the end of his life, and that's where our focus is and it should be. But God began to explain this way that he had ordained 15 years, 1,500 years before that. It started with a tent and a lamb, and it ended with a cross and an empty tomb. So if you turn to Hebrews chapter 9, in the first 15 verses, the Bible summarizes this entire 1,500-year history of how God has explained to us this incredible way, this marvelous way that we can be forgiven. And so that's, that'll be our focus today. Some of this is going to be very familiar to you. Uh, it's it's going to be... Um, you know, fourth grade math, okay? It's gonna be easy, but that's, but that's good. In fact, I love that song that we used to sing. Maybe we still sing some. I love to tell the story for those who know it best, seem hungering and thirsting to hear it like the rest. Do you know that song? Well, so some of this, we're just hearing the song again and you're familiar with it and we'll be encouraged by it. Some of this, though, is going to be therapeutic. Uh, some of this is going to help some people who have wandered away from the forgiveness of God, who, who are struggling maybe with feelings of hopelessness and discouragement. Maybe you feel condemned from the Lord, and this will be therapeutic. I think some of this will be surprising. And I know I'm talking to many people who know the Bible much better than I know the Bible. Uh, but I think we're going to see some things all of us will see some things in this passage that will surprise us. So let's just read. We're in Hebrews chapter 9. I want to begin reading in verse 2. The Bible says, For a tabernacle was set up, and in the first room, which is called the holy place, were the lampstand, the table, and the presentation loaves. Behind the second curtain was a tent called the most holy place. It had the gold altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered with gold on all sides. 
in which was a gold jar containing the manna, Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Verse 5, the cherubim of glory were above the ark, overshadowing the mercy seat. Now this is talking about a tent that had been set up. We're back 1,500 years before the death uh, burial and resurrection of Christ. This tent, this tabernacle had been set up as a place that people could come and worship God. And in this tent, there was an inner room that represented the very presence of God. And so priests would go into this room. They would go into this inner room once a year to speak to God on our behalf or on the behalf of those that that lived in that day. So let's just take a pause here and let me define a word. What does it mean? What do we mean when we say priest? What is a priest? Well, a priest is simply someone who goes to God on our behalf. I can't go to God. Why? Because I'm a sinner. I'm guilty. God is holy and righteous and perfect. I am stained with the guilt of sin. And that sin separates me from God. I couldn't go before a holy and a righteous God. So I need someone to go for me. And in the Old Testament, the priests were those that went to God on man's behalf. And so this priest would go into this tabernacle into this tent, just as it's described there in Hebrews 9, 2 through 5, and he would approach God. He would offer a sacrifice to God for the sins, for the sins of, uh, of the people. Now, you might, if you're really sharp, you might see a problem. If you and I can't approach God because we're sinful, then how could some, some man that has the title of priest approach God on our behalf because he too is sinful. Does that make sense? I can't go to God, so I need a priest to go to God for me. But how could some man be my priest because just for the same reason I can't go to God, he can't go to God. So just keep that, keep that thought in your mind. Now let's pick up in verse 6. It says, with these things prepared like this, the priest entered the first room repeatedly performing their ministry. But the high priest alone enters the second room and he does that only once a year and never without blood which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people uh, that, uh, that had, the, the sins that the people had committed in their arrogance. So once a year this high priest representing the people goes in and offers a sacrifice. They would kill these animals, and there were a lot of instructions about what kind of animals and exactly how this worked, but they would kill these animals. They would bring the blood into this inner room, and they would offer it to the Lord as a sacrifice for the sins of the people. Now, let's stop there, because there's something else we need to talk about that we need to define why in the world uh, would God demand that they bring blood into the temple, into the tabernacle, and why does that have anything to do with the forgiveness of sin? Well, that's an important question. God, when he told them to do this, was beginning to explain the answer to the question, how in the world could man ever be forgiven? 
So God prescribed that these certain animals, that they would be killed and that their blood would be brought in and offered to the Lord. Why is that? Well, for the Israelites, the blood stood for life. They didn't understand all of the biology and all the chemistry of blood that people would understand today, but they knew this. If you lost your blood, you lost your life, right? No blood, no life. And so for them, the blood was the very life force within a living creature or a person. And so when they brought this blood, it represented the life of the animal that had, uh, that had been killed. God is helping them to understand something that is difficult for them, was difficult for them to understand, and it's difficult for us to understand. The wages of sin is death. Have you ever heard that sentence before? Uh, we just read it in Romans chapter 6, verse 23 in the New Testament, but God is trying to teach these Hebrews who had a very concrete way of, uh, of understanding things, he's trying to teach them that when somebody sins, there must be death. That sin deserves death. The wages of sin is death. Now, why are the wages of sin death? I mean, it doesn't seem like my sins are so bad. I've not been to jail. I've not gotten in a whole lot of trouble for sin. How could, how could my sins deserve death? Well, there are a lot of ways we can answer that question, but the simplest is this. God is the source of life, right? All life and all of the goodness of life comes from God. Sin separates me from God. And so ultimately, if I have sin, I will be ultimately separated from God, which leads ultimately to death right? The eternal death. What is death? Death is separation from God because I've sinned. And so God is teaching these Hebrews that when you sin, death is the consequence. And they slaughtered these animals and they dealt with this blood as this visual lesson to them that sin deserves death. Now I know that that's hard to understand. It's hard to understand that God could have that kind of view of sin, but we just have to accept he does because he says he does. The wages of sin is death. And I think if we could understand sin the way that God understands sin, we would see how horrible it is and we would understand the wages of sin is death. I may have shared this with you before, but I heard a pastor tell a story one time uh, about a brand new car that, that he had bought and he had wanted a new car for a long time. But finally he goes and gets the car, the car of his dreams. And he comes home and, uh, he's, uh, he's married. The pastor's married and he's got one young son, maybe three or four years old, but he comes home and he shows his wife and he shows his son. And you know, they're all happy about the car and the dad's showing it off and look how shiny it is. And look at, you know, it's a new car and they're excited about it. And so the, you know, the excitement uh, wears off for a few minutes and they all just all go into the house and the car's parked in the garage. And then about an hour later, the father's looking around and he doesn't see his three or four year old son. So he's trying to find where he has gone and he ends up in the garage and he finds that his son has climbed up on the hood of the brand new car and he has a coat hanger in his hand 
and he is scratching artwork in his dad's new car. And so you can imagine the anger. The father is frustrated. This is going to cause so many problems. It's going to be very expensive to get this fixed. And then he's going to have to take off from work so that he can take the car to the body shop. And then he's going to have to get somebody to go get him from the body shop and take him back to work. He's probably going to have to rent a car. That's going to be aggravating. That's going to be expensive. Then the car is going to be fixed. And then he's going to have to take off work again, go down, pick up the car. He's not going to be happy with the paint job. He's going to have to get him to paint the car again. He's going to have to get another ride back home. He's going to go through this. And it's just, this is going to be a giant problem. And he's angry at his son. How dare you do this? And he reaches down and he grabs his son and he's so angry. But as soon as he does that, he realizes that his little four-year-old son has no ability to understand this. All his four-year-old son knows is that when I, when I draw something on a piece of paper, dad gets really excited and puts it on the refrigerator. And so now he's got a new car. I'm going to decorate it for him. And so the father recognizes there's no way he can explain to his son all of the, all of the problems that his son has created, how terrible this thing is. And so he ends up just hugging his son and saying, son, please don't scratch daddy's car again. And and, and there are ways that we just can't understand the horror of our sin. We can't understand it. A holy God, though, looks at our sin and tells us the wages of sin is death. And we just have to believe that. And so we see that God has, has provided them a lesson that they can learn that the wages of sin is death. Uh, the Bible says in Hebrews 9, 22, a little later in the chapter, we won't read it today, but it says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And so God's teaching these Hebrew uh, men and women this with this, uh, with this object lesson. Well, let's just continue to read. I want to skip down to verse 9. He says, this is a symbol for the present time during which gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the worshiper's conscience. And so as extreme as this system was, God says it still didn't remove sin. I mean, they offered a lot of animals. There were a lot of priests who went into that room and offered that blood. But God said it still wasn't enough. It still wasn't enough. And so God is teaching them both that the wages of sin is death but also that no human sacrifice, uh, no human exercise is sufficient for the forgiveness of sins. There's still something more that's needed. So look at verse 11. It begins, but Christ. So now we've gone ahead 1,500 years and things are different. The old system didn't work. It taught them an important lesson, but it never, it never truly brought forgiveness. Their consciences were still stained with sin. But Christ, something's different. Something has changed. It says, but Christ has appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come. So now there's a new high priest, not just some guy down at the tent. Now it's Jesus. It says, in the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, that is not of this creation, he entered the most holy place once for all time, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the 
blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a young cow, sprinkling those who are defiled, sanctify for the purification of flesh. How much more, how much better, it says, will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse our consciences from dead works so that we can serve the living God. It's interesting in the Old Testament, there were really three different officers. There were three people that God really put his hand upon. There were prophets. Prophets spoke to men, to people from God. Prophets brought God's message to us. Priests spoke to God on our behalf. They took our message to God. And then kings, we're going to talk about kings next week. But all of those, the prophets, the priests, and the kings, they were all imperfect. They were all insufficient. But one day there came a better prophet. One day there came a better priest. And one day there came a better king. And that's who Jesus is. He is the the better one for us. So let me look at those last two or three verses that we've read. And I want to show you how Christ is better. How is Christ better? He taught them this truth, the wages of sin is death. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin, no forgiveness of sin, but it wasn't enough. How is Christ better than what happened before? And this is good news. So the first thing I want you to see is Christ is the better priest. Christ is the better priest. Look back at the beginning of verse 11. But Christ has appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come. Now, how was Christ a better priest than these priests that we read of in the Old Testament? Well, the short answer is that he was able to come before God without first offering a sacrifice for himself. Now, that may be more important than you realize. All of these other priests, when they came, they were unworthy to come because they had sinned themselves. But Jesus came as the perfect one, the Son of God, who had never sinned. And so he didn't first have to offer a sacrifice for himself. He came qualified, qualified to make a sacrifice for us. Um, Let me read to you a little bit or share with you a little bit of what they would do, it's almost funny, to try to get that high priest years, years before. They, they knew that there was a problem. The high priest going in to offer a sacrifice on our behalf, but he's not qualified. So how can we get him qualified? And they did some crazy things. Uh, the week before this day, one day a year, Yom Kippur, they called it, uh, the week before the high priest was put into seclusion taken away from his home and put in a place all by himself so that he couldn't accidentally sin. So quarantined for a week so he wouldn't get in trouble. And then the night before, he did not go to bed, but he stayed up all night praying and reading God's word, trying to purify himself. And then on that morning, Yom Kippur, he bathed head to toe, dressed in pure, unstained white linen. So white, head to toe. And he would go in then and offer a sacrifice only for his own sin. And then he would come out. He would bathe again right there in the courtyard. He would put on new white linen. 
and he would go in and offer a second sacrifice for the sins of the priests. And then he would come out, he would bathe again, he would put on more new white robes, and he would finally go in and offer a sacrifice for the people. All of this was done in public. The temple was crowded, everybody was watching very closely. He did the bathing behind a thin screen, but thin enough that they could still see that he was doing it well. Uh, The people saw all of this and they were very concerned. Why? Because he was their representative and they wanted to make sure that he was as clean as he could be so that maybe God could accept the sacrifice. But it still wasn't enough. You can't clean up your conscience with some outward ceremony, some religious activity, some fervent promise or sincere belief. Hundreds of high priests did this through the years and not one of them was worthy Not one of them was qualified. So who can go and offer the sacrifice? Well, uh, back a couple of chapters in Hebrews uh, chapter 7, it tells us, 726 says, this is the kind of high priest we need, one that is holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. And who is that high priest? That is Jesus. Jesus is qualified because he lived a sinless life He is qualified to go before the Father and to go on our behalf and offer a sacrifice for us. Aren't you glad that Christ is the better priest? Now, the second thing I want you to see here is that Christ's tabernacle is the better tabernacle. Now, the tabernacle is the place where these priests would go to offer a sacrifice. Where did Christ go to offer the sacrifice? He didn't go to some tent or later it was called a temple and it was in a building, that's not where Christ went. Look at verse 11 again. I'm going to pick up halfway through the verse. It says, in the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands. Jesus didn't take the sacrifice to some some tent or some building in Jerusalem. He took the sacrifice for our sins straight to the throne, straight to the throne. In Hebrews 9.24, it says, Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with hands, but into heaven itself, so that he might appear in the presence of God for us. I think about our court system here in America. It's a tiered court system. That may not be a good legal description, but that's how I understand it. And so if you need to uh, have some legal matter settled, you might start by going to see a magistrate. And then if that doesn't bring resolution, you might go to a state trial court. And then if still it's not settled, you might go to an intermediate appellate court. And then perhaps you could go to a state court of appeals. And then you could escalate it even higher and go to the state Supreme Court. And then finally, you could go to the U.S. Supreme Court, which is at the very top of the court system in America. Well, when Jesus brought our case before the Father, when Jesus came and said, I died for their sins, and that was enough, he didn't take it to the magistrate, he didn't take it to the appellate court, he went straight to the Supreme Court of Heaven, and he presented the sacrifice for our sins to God himself, and God in that place pronounced those who put their trust in Christ not Guilty. Jesus Christ, his tabernacle is a better tabernacle. Then number three, Christ's offering is a better offering. 
And I want to spend just a little bit of time on this. Uh, there are three ways that that's true, that what Christ offered was better than what these priests of old offered. First of all, he offered his own blood, his own life to ransom us from sin. Jesus didn't do something symbolic. Uh, symbolism can't save you. Uh, Jesus did something real. He gave his own blood, his own life for our forgiveness. Jesus didn't almost die. He died. And Jesus was not the victim of circumstances. Don't let some liberal, Bible-denying preacher in Nacogdoches or some other place tell you that God took the lemons of Calvary and made lemonade out of them like God was not in control. No, this was God's plan from the beginning. And the Bible says this over and over. I think about Acts chapter 2 verse 23 that says he was delivered up. Jesus was delivered according to God's predetermined plan. It says in Romans 8, 32 that God ordained this to happen this way. The Bible says in Isaiah 53 that God designed this and God was the one that initiated the death of Christ on the cross. So he offered his own blood. That's, that's the difference. That's the first reason. It is a better offering because he offered his own life, his own blood. Now the second way it's a better offering is that Christ's blood was sufficient for all of our sins. It's interesting in verse 11 here, verse 12 rather, uh, he entered the most holy place once for all time, not by the blood of goats and calves, but his own blood, we see that, having obtained eternal redemption. Redemption is a, is a word in the original that referred to a ransom that was paid to free somebody from slavery. And so Christ's offering frees us from the guilt of every sin we've committed. It's a complete sacrifice and it brings comprehensive forgiveness. There is not one sin, there is not a thousand sins that you could commit that are so great that the blood of Christ is not sufficient. And when God walked in, so to speak, before the Father, to make the case, I have died, I have shed my blood for the sins, all the sins that have been committed. It included the sins you've committed and I've committed. There's nothing that you've done that is so bad. There's nothing that you have done that has been done so often that it's not included in, in what Jesus covered when he brought that sacrifice before the Father. Christ's blood was sufficient for all of our sins. And then Christ's blood is sufficient for all of our future sins. Now this is something I, I have read this passage, I don't know, a hundred times, probably hundreds of times, never seen it before. And, and it's a truth that you know, but I want, to, I want you to see the link here that may, that may surprise you. I have told you before in sermons uh, that our God is not a God of second chances. You hear people say that often and usually what they mean by that is true, but, but that's not a good way to say it. Our God is not a God of second chances because you and I don't need a second chance. If God just gave me a second chance, I would mess up the second chance just as fast as I messed up the first chance. 
I don't need a second chance, God. I'm not that good a person, and neither are you. If God just gave us a second chance, it would change nothing about our eternal uh, destiny. Thankfully, God is not a God of second chances. And I want to show that to you here. So if you look at verse 13, and you'd have to really look closely to see this, but there's an important little shift here in this verse. It says, for if the blood of goats and bulls, let's stop there, that's talking about this Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement, Leviticus chapter 23 ceremony that I've been talking about the whole message. That's what he's talking about, the blood of goats and bulls. Then goes on though and says, and the ashes of a young cow. Uh, now, I know we're getting into high weeds here, but uh, there are no ashes of a young cow in Yom Kippur. That's just not a part of that passage of scripture. That's not anywhere near Leviticus chapter 23. What's he talking about? Well, there's another, there's another ceremony, very important uh, to, the, to the Hebrew people, a ceremony that God used to teach them some further spiritual truths that's less familiar to us. And it is what's referred to here. It happens, it's described rather in Numbers chapter 19. And I was going to read it to you, but uh, just in the interest of time, let me tell you the story. So God gave the Israelites this special ceremony. He told them to take a young red heifer, cow, and burn it along with some other things that, had, that have symbolic meaning that we just don't have time to go through at present. And so to burn them and to collect the ashes and then take those ashes and set them aside in some special place for later on, for next week or next month or a year from now. And later on, when one of those Israelites would be guilty of sin, he could go to that place where these ashes were kept and he could take a, a pinch, just a tiny pinch of those ashes and he would mix it with water and he would do this ceremony and he would go to the Lord for forgiveness. Now, what is that a picture of for us? It is a reminder that when Christ died for the forgiveness of our sins, it's not just the forgiveness of our past sins, but Jesus has taken that sacrifice to heaven and it is available to us to go and take a pinch of those ashes, to go and call upon the Lord, not just now, but tomorrow and the next day and the next day and always find forgiveness. See, what was interesting about the burnt cow is that when the ashes were gone, they were gone. They would have to sometime later repeat the ceremony. Sometimes people had to wait years or decades before the ceremony would be repeated again. But Jesus, his forgiveness never runs out. The Bible says he is faithful and just if we'll confess our sins to forgive us of our sins and, and cleanse us completely. Not only have my past sins been forgiven, but God has given me a full forgiveness. God is not my God of a second chance. My God is a God of full forgiveness if I, if I trust him. Do you see that Christ's offering is a better offering? And then finally, Christ's cleansing is the better cleansing. If you look back at verse 14, I won't read the whole verse, but near the end it says that this offering will cleanse our consciences from, from dead works, from, from sin. 
This is talking about an inward cleaning, not just some ceremony makes you feel better about yourself, but real forgiveness. And I want to tell you how thorough, how wonderful this forgiveness is. First of all, the blood of Christ removes all the guilt with the Father. Uh, the Bible says in Isaiah 43, 25, I sweep away your transgressions for my, own, for my own sake, and I remember your sins no more. God has so forgiven me. His forgiveness is so complete. He remembers my sins no more. That doesn't mean he's not knowledgeable of them. God knows everything, but it means that God will never bring up those sins against me ever again because they're covered in the blood of Christ. Christ's cleansing is better because it removes all the guilt I had before the Father. Secondly, Christ, the blood of Christ removes all bitterness. Bitterness. So sometimes the problem with forgiveness is not just that we need forgiveness from God, but we need to extend forgiveness to people who have hurt us. How in the world can we do that? Well, because of what Christ has done, we can do that. When we fully embrace that Christ has forgiven us, then we're able to forgive to forgive others. When somebody comes to me for counsel and they say, Pastor, I just can't forgive so-and-so. I can't forgive my ex-husband. I can't forgive my kids, my parents, my boss, my whoever. They've just hurt me too badly. Uh, the sin is just too terrible. I can't forgive them. So what do I do as pastor? Well, I I'll tell you what I don't do. Uh, I don't ask them about the details of the sin that they can't forgive. And, and, and that ordinarily is what people want to talk about. Let me tell you, Pastor, just how awful it was. Well, I'll just take your word for it. It was awful. It was awful. People do awful things sometimes. But talking about how awful it is is not going to help you forgive. Here's what I do. I say, let's take 20 minutes and let's talk about all the ways that God has forgiven you. Let's go through that list. Let's go through not the list of the things that person did to you, but let's go through a list of the things you've done before the Lord and how God has forgiven those. And listen, about 10 minutes into that, you begin to see their heart soften. About 15 minutes into sharing a list of things that they have done that God has forgiven, you see some, you see some changes. And then ultimately, listen, how do you forgive somebody? You embrace that God has forgiven you. The most beautiful thing in the world is when someone fully embraces and appreciates the fact that God has forgiven us and that just works its way through us and out to every relationship that we have. Christ's cleansing is a better cleansing because it's only because of that that we can forgive other people. And then finally, Christ's cleansing is a better cleansing because the blood of Christ removes all self-condemnation and shame. So many people, and I'm sure I'm talking to some, so many people are filled with just this self-condemnation, this shame because of their sin. And, and that comes from a lot of places. Oftentimes people will have a standard that they're trying to meet that's not a standard that comes from the Lord. But more often it's because we don't appreciate the thoroughness of God's forgiveness when Christ forgives you, the Bible says, 2 Corinthians 5.21, that the Father takes the righteousness of Christ and he wraps it around you like a robe. And when the Father sees you, when the Father sees me, 
He doesn't see, this is what Noel did yesterday, and this is what Noel did last Wednesday, and this was his attitude on Tuesday. When God sees me, he sees the, the sinless life of Christ and the blood that was shed to pay the penalty for my sins. And when we fully embrace that, our shame falls away. I read a story this week told as a true story uh, about a, a woman who had lived a very difficult life. Uh, when she was young, she was, uh, she was molested. And when she was a young adult, she was, was raped. That put her in a really dark place and she ended up living as a, as a young woman, she ended up living a very promiscuous life. She met a man that she, and she loved him and he loved her, but she just couldn't break free from, the, from her past. And even in their engagement, she was not faithful to this man. But they were married. And they were married for a while, but she was so filled with, with shame. Her heart was just ripped apart because of her past and that she had kept it from her husband who just loved her through and through. So one day as the story goes, she got up enough courage to tell him. And she said, I'm not gonna hold anything back. I'm gonna tell you my whole life. And she began at the beginning and she told him of the awful things that had been done to her. And then she told him of the awful things that she had done. She just knew that he would abandon her and that the one man that had loved her truly uh, would never speak to her again. But she finished her story and she looked up just in tears and she saw the most unusual thing. He stands up, not saying a word, and he walks out the front door. And she's just left wondering, what does this mean? Is he so upset that he can't speak? Is he just, will he ever come back? But an hour later, he's back and he has a package and he hands it to her and he says, I want you to go to the bedroom and I want you to put on what's in this package. And so she does, she opens the package and it's just this long white nightgown. And she doesn't understand, but she does what she's been asked to do. She, she puts on this long white nightgown and she walks back uh, to the room where her husband waited. And here's what he said. I choose to see you not by what you've done or what has been done to you but I choose to see you solely by what Jesus Christ has done to forgive and cleanse you. When I see you, I see a woman who has been clothed in the righteousness of Christ because Jesus is the better priest offering the better sacrifice that provides the better cleansing. We can know forgiveness from God. We can give forgiveness to others. And we can experience 
full forgiveness for ourselves. The Lord's Supper is a celebration of all of that that I've just talked about. When we partake of the Lord's Supper, when we drink the juice, when we eat the bread, we're remembering how Christ is the better priest and the better sacrifice. And so I want us to, to celebrate the truths that we've just heard by taking the Lord's Supper. So here's how we're going to begin. I just want us to have a couple of minutes of, of just quiet stillness. If you need to talk to somebody or to pray, there'll be people here at the front that can help you with that. Just step out from where you are. But just other than that, with your head bowed and eyes closed, let's just spend a couple of minutes thinking about Christ as the better priest and the forgiveness that can be ours if we'll call on him. Father, remind us right now, Christ is the better priest.